You might have noticed that last week we skipped a very particular section of this second chapter of Galatians. And that, of course, was on purpose. It's the scene we're going to cover this morning. It's the scene where Paul, both personally and publicly, rebukes uh, his brother Peter to his face, as he says. It's one of the most crucial scenes, I think, that we ought to understand. Not only uh, is it crucial to understanding what's going on with this letter, but I also think it's crucial to understanding its place within the entire New Testament. And indeed, I would say I think it's absolutely critical that we understand what this confrontation uh, was and why it's important, why Paul includes it within this letter. Not only for its standing in history, but it's also its place for us even today as the church. And that's why, of course, uh, we didn't go into it last week. But we're going to spend an extensive amount of time on it this week. Because I want you to be very certain. I want you to be very clear, have it very clear in your mind's eye why Paul did what he did. Be certain about what he did, but also why that he did it. But also to even go as far as to say that I want you, even where you sit here this morning, to have the same amount of resolve, the same amount of gumption, if you will, that Paul had to do the same thing if the need arises. Does that mean that I want you going around looking for theological fights? No. I don't want you going around like a mercenary looking for ways that you can pick fights with people about theology. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is we're seeing that very, very clearly, very blatantly, that there are some things that are more important than others. Did you know that there's, we could say, a hierarchy of things that we should get mad about in our faith? Not everything, we don't need to greet everything within the Christian faith as if it deserves the same amount of vitriol as other things. And here we're being given an example of what's at the very top of that hierarchy of things that we ought to get riled up about. There's some things that you should. There's some things that you can let slide. But there's some things that you should get very riled up about. And at the very top of that totem pole, if you will, is namely the gospel. As Paul has clearly established throughout these first two chapters of Galatians, he is always concerned about the truth of the gospel. He's repeated that phrase a couple of times already. And he's explaining what this gospel is while also giving them a history lesson, so to speak, so that they understand that the gospel, the very truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as he said back in chapter 1, verse 4, delivered himself up to death in order to deliver us from sins, that truth is a hill worth dying on. You know, one of the things that I was told... Very early on when I, when I was understanding my calling to be a pastor, to be a preacher, as I was told by multiple individuals, my dad, my granddad, both of whom were pastors, and other uh, pastors that were in my life, is be sure you pick the right hills to die on. And one of those, of course, is you know, it's the old Baptist example. And I'm a Baptist, I can pick on Baptist. The old Baptist example is, you know, don't die on the hill of what color the carpet is. That's, that's what I'm talking about. That's not one of the things that you're supposed to fall on the sword for. That's not that important. What is important? 
What is a hill to die on, what is uh, something to get riled up about, is when the truth of that gospel is being impugned upon, when it's being thrown into question, when it's even being thrown into jeopardy. That's when you should stand up. That's when you should get riled up. Exactly like Paul. Because that's what he's doing here. He's withstanding the Apostle Peter to his face. Why? Because the truth of the gospel was in the balance. And Peter's attempt to sort of save face, if you will, to sort of maintain his reputation was threatening to undermine the life and the fellowship and the longevity of the church. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I want you to see how all of this is so important and critical for us to understand. As you're in Galatians chapter 2, we are still within this sort of section in which Paul is sort of giving uh, his own history lesson, so to speak. It happened back in chapter 1 verse 10 where he started talking about his motivations. And then he went right into that by talking about his conversion and his calling. And he shares that beloved story about how God revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus. He's establishing very clearly, as we spent a lot of time last week, the fact that he is an apostle. Not because of anyone else said so, but because God called him to be an apostle. He's also clarifying that as an apostle, as a representative of the Lord Jesus, being designated as a representative by the Lord Jesus himself, the message that he comes preaching is sort of stamped with the Lord Jesus' approval itself. He's... That level of authority, so to speak. And it leads him here to recount this incredible scene, nowhere else recorded in the Bible. It's the scene that we read a moment ago of when he stood up to Peter or Cephas, as he records his name here in verse number 11, as he says, to his face. Notice verse 11. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood Condemned. To situate you into this history for just a moment, this is, I believe, happening right on the heels of Paul's first missionary journey. He and Barnabas have just returned after traveling to these very same churches that he's now writing this letter to, the churches of southern Galatia. In fact, keep a finger in Galatians 2 and go with me to Acts chapter 14. Acts 14. Acts 13 to 14 record this missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas went on. And they went to many of these same churches that would populate this region known as southern Galatia. And here, as they arrive back in Antioch, they're giving a report of all that they had seen and all that they had witnessed. Notice it says, well, let's read verse 24. They passed through Pisidia. And came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken to a word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and, they, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, notice, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. 
So here it's like, you know, when we have missionaries, you know, in the, old, in the olden days when the missionaries would take out their little slides and they would do the slide things and they show you all the pictures of their, of their travels on the missionary field. You can imagine Paul and Barnabas doing something similar. They're sharing slides of all the amazing things that they've been able to see and accomplish and witness. Yes, including some of the times in which they were stoned and left for dead in places where they were preaching the gospel. But all throughout what? They are testifying to the fact that a door of faith, as Paul is here saying, was open to the Gentiles. That even they, Gentile sinners, those who don't belong to the nation of Israel, they have been receiving the truth of God with great joy and delight. And as they are sharing this message, you can imagine this church is gathering here and they are filled with joy and delight. They are worshiping God. The gospel is going forth. But not everyone was so happy. Not everyone was quite so thrilled with this advancement of the gospel being uh, preached in such a manner that the Gentiles weren't being told what to do. You can see that clearly from the very next verse in chapter 15. So they're worshiping in Antioch. And then notice, but some men came down from Judea. And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Talk about a buzzkill on this party that's happening in Antioch. They're worshiping, fellowshipping, and then these guys come down. They come down from the, from, uh, the, the mountain in Judea, and they come with their message That unless you're following Moses, unless you're keeping the law to the strictest letter of the law, you cannot and you are not justified. You are not saved in the eyes of God. These, of course, were the Judaizers, the very same individuals that Paul was up against in the letter to the churches of Galatia. Legalistic Jews, these guys were. They were adamant. They were so matter of fact with the fact that, yes, you have to believe in Jesus, but just as important, you have to follow Moses. If there has ever been a, I don't know of another place where there's ever been such a blatant sort of message of Jesus plus. Yeah, Jesus, but you also... This is why, by the way, Paul, back in our text in Galatians 2, refers to them kind of sarcastically as the circumcision party... (laughs) That's, that's what they're known for. They're known for following these laws, following these codes. And unless you do that, you cannot be saved. That was their gospel. That was their message, which, of course, Paul has already established. It's not really a gospel at all. And the point is, as Paul is here telling the story, is that before these guys arrived, as he calls them, before these certain men came from Judea and came to ruin our party in Antioch, Peter was fellowshipping with Gentiles. Go back to Galatians 2. Cephas came to Antioch, came to that same city where they're rejoicing after this first mystery journey, and he had to oppose him to his face. Why? Because he stood condemned. And why was he condemned? Verse 12. For before certain men, same phrase, by the way, from Acts 15, where it says some men, certain guys, some dudes came down. He says, they came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. (laughs) He pulled back, Peter did. 
When these goody-two-shoes Jews descended on Antioch, he withdrew. He pulled back. He started not fellowshipping with the same Gentiles that he was just sharing a meal with. Why? Because he was so fearful of what these certain men might say or do or think. And this is so unlike Peter, of course. That's why Paul has to call him out. Especially for the fact that Peter knew better. If you recall, Peter was given a vision back in Acts chapter 10. That all those old ceremonial food laws, they... They're no longer in effect. If you remember, he gets that vision of a sheet falling down from heaven and is filled with all of these animals that that are known as being quote-unquote unclean according to the laws of Moses. And he's given this word from God to say, go and eat. And he says no a couple of times and then finally he relents and he understands. It is made to understand as he interacts with this Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. That actually all of those things didn't matter in the whole grand scheme of receiving forgiveness of sins. And in fact, flip over to Acts 10 because I want you to see what Peter says. This is from Peter himself. Acts 10, look at verse 43. To him, that is to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, that believes in Jesus, receives Forgiveness of sins. Notice, through his name. Period. Peter's given this vision. He's made to understand it by this subsequent interaction with Cornelius and his whole household. And now he's made to clearly understand that the forgiveness of sins is not tied to Jesus and something else. It's just Jesus and his name alone. That's where forgiveness is received by sinners, by grace through faith. And he preaches that here. And then even further, if you go into the next chapter, in chapter number 11, he defends this very doctrine, this very truth of the gospel to these very same guys that are causing such a havoc in chapter 15. Notice verse 11, or excuse me, notice chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, notice that phrase, criticized him. Saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. (laughs) They're not keeping kosher laws. They're not eating kosher. And yet you're you're fraternizing with them. You're fellowshipping with them. Are Are you really even a faithful Jew, Peter? And here in this moment, Peter stands up to them. And he basically says, as he's just already established, that it doesn't matter whether you're eating kosher or not. That's not the point. That's not how anyone is justified. The only way anyone is justified in the eyes of God is when they repent and believe in what God's Son did by faith. That's what leads to life. Notice verse 18 of chapter 11. When they heard those things, so Peter's just finished preaching... When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And yet, even with all that under his, under his belt, so to speak, that's what should make it all the more concerning, but also all the more frustrating if you put yourself in Paul's shoes, that now, with all of that, even all of that, Peter is cracking, so to speak, under the pressure here in this moment, 
And he folds. He folds because of the peer pressure of these Judaizers. And whereas before, he was welcoming and accepting of Gentile sinners, even if they weren't keeping the laws of Moses to a T. Now he's refusing to sit with them, refusing even to associate with them. Now he's stiff-arming any sort of acceptance of them at all. And before you think that this is not that big of a deal, Peter can choose who he wants to eat with and who he doesn't want to eat with. That's not what this is about. Paul makes it clear in Galatians chapter 2, look at verse 13. He's making it clear that this just wasn't about you know, being picky with who you eat with and who you don't eat with. This is a matter of cutting off fellowship because certain things weren't being followed in a certain sort of way. And he's saying that it's not just Peter's problem. This is infecting the church. Notice verse 13. As he says, after Peter has drawn back, notice verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy, by their play acting. They're doing all of this for pretense. They're doing all of it for show. And it didn't take long. Peter has been acting one way. He's been fellowshipping, eating. And now all of a sudden these other guys come in. And now he's not eating. I can't do that. I can't eat with you anymore. I have to save face. I have to maintain reputations. And it didn't take long for others to follow suit. You can, you can understand how it would have gone down. Oh, Peter. Peter's not eating with them. He's not sitting and eating with Gentile sinners. I guess that means I shouldn't either. And this just spreads like a virus throughout the church at Antioch for a moment. Where now, fellowship has just been totally morphed into friction. And now all that delight that they had shared just a few moments ago has now disintegrated into discord. Now you have... Gentiles and Jews sitting on opposite sides of the sanctuary. Sitting on complete ends of the table. They're not even at the same table. All because one are saying, you need to keep these certain things. And these other Gentiles have been told that that's not part of the deal. See, Peter's refusal to eat with the Gentiles because of their lack of keeping the laws of Moses. This wasn't a light thing. This wasn't just an insignificant little moment. And Paul didn't think so either. Again, this wasn't the case of just differing opinions, differing preferences. The truth of the gospel is on the line. Where these Jews are saying, you have to do certain things in order to be accepted into the household of faith. Before we greet you, before we welcome you, you got to do X, Y, and Z. And if you haven't done those yet, you better get on it. That's what was being said through Peter's actions. The message of Peter, that whether he meant to send or not, doesn't really matter. The message that Peter was sending is that there was extra subsequent secondary things that you had to follow in order for faith to really make you justified. In order for you to stand in the eyes of God as one cleared of sin and given, yes, by grace, the righteousness of God. In order for that to be true, you had to do something else. And as Paul witnesses all of this unfold... He had to speak up. 
He had to make it known. He had to speak up and say something. And so, in front of everyone, as he says, verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, when I saw that what they were doing was not lining up with what they were saying, which is, yes, the very basic definition of what it means to be a hypocrite. When I saw that, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Here Paul calls out Peter in front of a crowd of peers, in front of an assembly, exposing his recent actions. So Peter's trying to save face. I'm a Jew, proper Jew. I follow laws of Moses. I eat kosher, all those sorts of things. When Paul's like, you weren't just last week. (laughs) Imagine Peter's embarrassment in front of these very prestigious, persnickety Jews that have come down and he's trying to impress and try to sidle up with and save face with. And Paul now is calling out Peter, you weren't doing that last week. We might ask the question, why didn't Paul take Peter aside? That's one of the questions that often arises out of the scene. Why didn't Paul just take Peter into a, a private uh, sort of room and have, you know, re- 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 rebuke him behind closed doors to sort of save him the embarrassment? Well, I think it's because of Peter's stature within that church. And within the early church at large, he is an apostle. He had spent time with Jesus. How Peter's acting is influencing the rest of the church. You've already seen it. And Peter's very public disfellowship with the Gentiles earned Paul's very public rebuke. This act of hypocrisy was threatening this church. And again, as we saw, Peter knew better. And now he's backtracking. And to make matters worse, he was leading others to backtrack with him. And this, again, this is not simply an issue of being picky with who you eat with and who you don't. This was much, much bigger than sort of the customs of the Jews sort of being pitted against the customs of the Gentiles. This, the whole scene, has at its heart an issue that is threatening to undo the fellowship of the gospel, making it contingent upon something other than faith. Something other than just bare belief in what Jesus has accomplished on the stead of sinners. And this is again why Paul writes so pointedly in verses 15 and 16. Again, he's just called out Peter. Notice what he says. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I don't think this is one of those instances where I think some of our Bibles do us a disservice. I don't think that this is Paul just suddenly 
flipping the script and going back to just letter writing. I think he's referencing or remembering or maybe you could even say remixing something of what he said to Peter with these verses. I think he used similar words to confront him in front of all of those who were there that day, reminding him that, yes, you're a Jew by birth, but that doesn't matter a hill of beans when it comes to the matter of justification. Peter, you're not justified because you're a Jew. You're not justified because you've kept all the laws of Moses. Peter, just you, just like every single sinner ever that has ever lived, Gentiles included, you've been justified by faith. Not because of works. Not because of effort. Not because of the things you're doing or not doing. Peter, your justification, your right standing before the living God of the universe is not dependent upon you, neither is dependent upon me. It's dependent upon what God and Christ has done. It's the truth of the gospel. That is what Paul is trying to get in the face of Peter and remind him of. Your right standing is, is settled because of what Jesus did. And Paul is saying, mine is too. And so is Titus's. And so is yours. That's the good news. And in fact, Acts chapter 13, if you want to know, this is exactly what he was preaching to the Galatian churches. Acts chapter 13, verse 38, Paul is saying this. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything, notice, from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul has been the same throughout the whole start of this whole thing. He's been called and converted by God to preach one singular message. Is that is the message of Jesus. That he has accomplished everything necessary for sinners to repent and believe and be justified by faith. And here he's referencing the same thing. It's never been about keeping certain things or checking certain boxes. The gospel's announcement of, of forgiveness and justification by, uh, by grace through faith and what Jesus has accomplished has never been attached to subsequent things that you have to do. It's been about repenting and believing and trusting that this message is true. The gospel's announcement that your justification and mine, your right standing and mine before the God who spoke everything into existence, that gift has been given to you, paid in full for you when Jesus surrendered himself to die for sins that he did not commit. That's why in chapter 1, what does Paul say? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. Again, that's the gospel. How does grace and peace be uh, given to sinners? Because they've been, they've had their sins paid for. This you see is the truth of the gospel that Paul was so ready and so willing to defend. He stands up at a moment because he sees this is not lining up. And this is going to threaten to undo the church. And he stands up for the, the sake of this truth. 
Even if it meant standing in front of someone with the pedigree and the position of the Apostle Peter. Instead of standing down because of who Peter was, because of his status, because he was one of the ones who followed Jesus, and not just one of the ones who followed Jesus, he was on the inner circle of Jesus' followers. And Paul said, it doesn't matter. I'm going to stand up to you because you're getting it wrong. That's why he said earlier, remember earlier in chapter 2 where he's talking about those who seemed influential? Peter's saying, or, or Paul is saying, it doesn't really matter what their title is. It doesn't matter what their rank is. If they're getting it wrong, they deserve to be called out on that. And even here, he's standing up to someone with a level of influence that Peter had. Because he's saying, in the light of eternity, your level of influence is not even close to being as significant or as important as getting the gospel right. The good news of justification by grace through faith in Jesus was way too important to let Peter influence his message. And indeed, I think... One of my church history heroes, Martin Luther, would agree, as he says in his commentary in the book of Galatians, quote, that if the article of justification be lost, then all true Christian doctrine is lost. I don't think he's being hyperbolic there. I don't think he's trying to just exaggerate a point to make a point. I think he's being very accurate. If this doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Jesus, if that's set aside, if that's allowed to fall by the wayside, then everything else follows. All of the other pillars of theology that we hold up, of pillars of faith that we hold dear, they will all crumble and crack. We've drawn... In the past, comparisons between Paul and Luther before. That's nothing new, and I'm not novel for that. That's been uh, done several times by historians and theologians and whatnot. But I can't help but draw your attention to both of these defenders of the gospel once again. Because both Paul and Luther were unwavering in their commitment to upholding the truth of the gospel. Which, of course, is understood in this explosive declaration that your right standing before God is not sort of a conditional contract where if you fulfill a certain number of things, then it will be true. No, it's an unconditional promise offered to you in the gift of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's so important for us to understand. The gospel is not a declaration that is a, a, if I can say this, an if-then reality. The gospel of if-then says, if you do this, then this will be true. That's not the gospel. Again, that's tying certain conditions onto what the gospel has already declared. What is the gospel? The gospel is a because-therefore declaration. Because this is true, this is also true by faith. Because Jesus subsumed and swallowed all of your sins, you are free from sin, and when you trust and believe, you're not just made new, you are made alive in Him. I, I, I can't spend too much time on that because I'm going to steal from next time. Because that's what he's going to talk about at the end of Galatians 2. That now it's no longer me living, Paul says, but it's Christ living in me. Why? Because 
of what is already true and what Jesus has accomplished. The gospel is a because therefore declaration. It is an announcement that because of what Jesus has done, therefore this is true of me and you by faith. That's sort of what Luther, we can say, rediscovered. Luther didn't come up with this, of course. There were, even if you go before the, the age of Martin Luther in the 1500s, there were several sort of, uh, sort of Protestant Bible-believing theologians and preachers and, and teachers who were standing up for the truth of the gospel, many of whom lost their lives in that crusade, so to speak. Luther, though, we might say, blew the dust off this truth. You can imagine, I think one of the things that I would love to just impress upon you again is just the fact that uh, Luther's revelation, so to speak, wasn't just his own ingenuity. Luther, of course, as we've spent some time saying before, he was an Augustinian monk. He was studying the word of God in in that sort of sect of the Catholic Church. And he was poring over copies of God's word. He was given access to the word of God, unlike many who would visit those churches, unlike many parishioners in his very own church, he was allowed to read the word of God, which already should give you alarm bells that not the word of God is not in everyone's hands. But as he's reading and as he's studying, what happens? He suddenly realizes that what he's been told to believe actually doesn't line up with what he's reading. What he's Studying out of the word of God, the very thing that his whole order of monks is supposed to live by and stand up for. He's noticing this doesn't line up. There's a discrepancy here. (laughs) Instead of letting it go, what does he do? He takes a piece of paper and nails 95 reasons to the church door of why they're getting it wrong. The more he read, the more he studied, the more he realized that the church's doctrines were not in step with the truth of the gospel, as we just read here in Galatians chapter 2. And we could say that for Luther, the rest is history. They were adding the church and the order of monks that he was a part of were adding extra requirements to this very same gospel. Adding extra things that they had to do, that they had to Make sure was right. If you were a sinner and you wanted to experience the peace of having your sins forgiven, then you had to do this penance or pay that indulgence or say this whole laundry list of prayers. And Luther had tried all that. As you might know, he, he was rigorous with his confession. And he had always come up short. He could never confess enough. He could never pay enough penance. He could never do anything to quiet the loud anxiety in his soul. And that is until he was brought face to face with the amazing truth that the gospel that we preach uh, declares to us. Namely this, that the righteousness that God demands of us is a righteousness that God gives us in his son, Jesus, in his death and resurrection. That's the amazing, wonderful truth that this very thing that God has demanded is now given to us in the gift of Jesus' death. That when God in Christ delivered himself up to die in order to deliver sinners from eternal death, at the same time, he secured eternal redemption, as the writer of the Hebrew says, or justification, right standing for every sinner. 
who repents and believes. That's what was won on that tree called Calvary. Jesus died so that sinners could be made right with God. And that's not something that he leaves for sinners to settle. Jesus doesn't die and say, earn it. Jesus doesn't sigh, die and say, now do something to make sure that what I have just done is good enough. God has never tied his favor and forgiveness to, to sinners for on whether or not they were doing enough of the law or paying enough penance or paying enough indulgences or confessing enough sins. If that were the case, how would any sinner ever know that they have done enough? Where would that line be? The answer is they could never be sure. He would always be living with anxiety, always living with this sense of doubt. Nothing we could ever do could make us justified in the sight of God, make us right with him. Again, that's why Paul is so definitive and so very pointed with what he has just said. That it doesn't, it's not works of the law. That's not how you are justified. How are you justified? Verse 16 again, we are justified by faith in Christ. Period. Your right standing before the Lord is in what the Lord has done. That's what Paul was saying to Peter. You're you're missing it. You're confusing the messages now. Luther would say the same thing. But as it happens, back to Galatians, that's exactly the confession that of that the Jerusalem Council eventually makes. Just a little bit of history as we close. Look at Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, again, it's on the heels of all of this discussion. Notice verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way to the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So even as they're going to the apostles to, quote unquote, have another debate about this thing, they are spreading the very same gospel and they're spreading delight and and joy by it. And it says, verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, notice who stands up. Peter stood up and said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. That by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referencing Acts chapter 10. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke On the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we will be saved through. Or, excuse me, nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. 
just as they will. You have this amazing scene where after the confrontation at Antioch, notice who's standing up. Peter is now defending and clarifying the very gospel of the grace of God. This is known as the Jerusalem Council. Where this, in the early days of the church, when the gospel was being threatened, the church stands up for what matters most. The gospel of God is something worth fighting for. It's something worth standing for. It's a hill that I think we should all be willing to die on. Like Luther and Paul before him. The truth of the gospel of God is a matter of highest importance. It's the highest thing that we could ever get riled up about. And I pray that I'm always willing to put myself... On the line, so to speak, for the sake of this beloved truth. Even if it means uh, confronting or even losing someone that I'm close to. May it, be, may it never be said of me that I walk back from the truth of the gospel. May that never be the case. And may that never be the case with you either. My friends. God's forgiveness and justification of sinners... That's a gift given in the name of Jesus alone. It is through him and through him alone that you are enough. That you stand justified, stand in right standing with God. As we talked about last time, I won't re-preach that again. But as soon as you add a little bit of a price to a gift, it's no longer a gift. As soon as you add that and make it cost just at least a little bit of something... It's no longer the gift of grace. There are no, my friends, secondary matters that you have to live up to in order for that to be true. No matter how spiritual they might sound, your justification is not a matter of Jesus plus anything. And let's reimagine the scene. Because I'm not going to, I'll wager to guess that very few of us here eat kosher. Or very few of us here are stiff-arming other people because they're not circumcised or not. But let's reimagine the scenario. And now you're stiff-arming people because they don't belong to the same church denomination that you belong to. Or now you're, you're disassociating yourself from people because they don't line up with your same political affiliation. Or they don't have your same stance on alcohol. Or they don't have their same sort of standard of what music you should or shouldn't listen to. Or on and on down the line. What are we doing? We are doing exactly what Peter did in Galatians chapter 2. We're taking ourselves out of fellowship with believers because they're not lining up with what we think they should follow. My friends, there's no room for anything we might add To the announcement of the gospel. Which is nothing but the declaration of free justification in the finished work of Jesus. My friends, if I could get anything to be implanted into your hearts and minds and souls. It is that Jesus is your justification. He is your enoughness. 
And he has done everything necessary in order to deliver every single sinner, including you, or even including the sinner that you don't think deserves it. They have been uh, uh, made, they have, yes, the same gift extended unto them. Their right standing is secure in what God in Christ has done, and all that remains is to repent and believe. So the question is do you believe that? Do you believe that your right standing with the God who spoke everything into existence is secure for you in Jesus? Or are you running yourself ragged trying to make sure that you've done enough things? Or that your neighbor has done enough things? (laughs) There is only one route to a joy-filled Christian life. It's the route that's lived by faith. My friends, this morning, you are here by faith. You're alive by faith. You live, you breathe, you talk, you walk, you act by faith. Let it never be said that we can claim anything for ourselves. No. It's all gifts given to us by grace through faith in what Jesus has done There is no other gospel than that. Let us pray.